So have you ever wondered, what's the, what's the big difference between Christianity and everything else? There's all these religions in the world. Um, we're probably only aware of 50% of the religions in this world because even the smallest tribes in Africa uh, or in the, in the jungles of the Amazon, they all have their own um, individual religions as well. But what makes our religion different? All of them speak of love, peace. Um, all of these great attributes that um, humanity appreciates, you can find hints of those throughout all religions. But what makes us different? One time I heard a missionary talking about uh, how he was interacting with a man about Islam and, hey, we have all the same things. We even worship the same God you worship. And this missionary said, there's something different about my religion and your religion. He said this, Uh, He said, imagine all the religions are trying to reach this one God and this God is at the top of a mountain and Islam takes the takes the path this way and and Hinduism comes this way and Buddhism comes this way. We're all trying to reach the same God. It's just a different path. And the the Muslim guy said, yeah, that's it. That's that's the picture. And the missionary said, but that's the difference. That's not our religion. Our religion is not about man trying to make their way to God. It's about a God who has made his way to man. And that's the picture we're going to see this morning in this passage in Matthew, this word Emmanuel, God with us. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. It's not that man is trying to work his way to God uh, through good deeds and jumping through the right hoops. It's no, God has made his way to us a lost race of people who needed salvation. And that's what we're going to see here in Matthew. So last week, we saw Matthew's uh, genealogy, his um, the, the lineage of Jesus. And that lineage showed us that Jesus truly is this promised Messiah um, that has been preserved throughout the generations, the son of man or the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ, right? We saw his kind of human pedigree there, if you will. Today, we're going to kind of look at his spiritual pedigree, uh, if you will. We're going to look at how Matthew has showed us, yes, this is Jesus who's come through this long line of line of men and has come to us today. Now let's look at his spiritual pedigree as well. If there was a way to sum up the book of Matthew, uh, it, would, it would be the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Matthew talks about the kingdom so much. The gospel of the kingdom. And when he introduces this king of the kingdom in Matthew 1 through 4, um, he gives you a picture of this king that's coming. And he says this one phrase over and over, which I think sums up in some sense the book of Matthew as well. It is this fulfillment, fulfillment. Just you don't have to look at these passages, but I just want to show you in Matthew right off the bat. He starts off by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus, right? In fulfillment of all these things. Then in Matthew 1, 22, it says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Again, in Matthew 2, 15, it says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Matthew 2, 17 then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew 2.23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that, he, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew 3.15, let us, uh, Jesus answered, Let us now, or let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When he was being baptized. And finally, Matthew 4.14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And that is just 
in Matthew's introduction of who Jesus is. So Matthew's point is to say this. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures and he meets all of our expectations and desires that had been built up and pent up uh, in the nation of Israel waiting for this promised king to arrive. And so our passage today comes from Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and it's the birth of Jesus. And in, even especially within this small passage, we're going to see Matthew making the point, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, our, our, our hopes and dreams and desires, and here's how he does that through these three uh, miraculous things, three miraculous things. So let's read through this passage. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Again, this is going to be a passage you've heard a million times uh, that you've read every Christmas, but we're going to read it again because it's so good. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25 says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken, or what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and she called his name Jesus. So right off the bat, we see, number one, we have a miraculous pregnancy, a miraculous pregnancy. Uh, we read through the story, and it's, it's kind of a crazy story, right? Jesus and Mary are betrothed. They're engaged, but in that time, that culture, that engagement um, entailed legal connection already. Uh, if you were engaged with somebody, you had to legally break that off. Um, it was a more serious uh, state than our, uh, our culture's engagement, if you will. They were engaged, and Joseph found out she was pregnant. Obviously, that would cause some alarm to him, as they were not married yet. So Joseph decides to divorce her. And when he does, he decides to divorce her quietly, um, uh, uh, to not pull, put shame upon her. And then an angel shows up. Another miraculous thing, an angel shows up uh, to on Joseph's doorstep and says, hey, don't worry, uh, the Holy Spirit has placed that baby in her, you just go ahead and marry her. And Joseph, being an obedient guy, says, okay, I will. So he marries her, um, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took her as his wife, and then they did not come together um, until she had the baby Jesus, right? This is a crazy story. We've heard it a million times. But as we think about this miraculous pregnancy, why did this pregnancy take place in this way? Uh, why did God do this? Well, I think if we look at Joseph, we start, we kind of start to uh, get some inclination on what's going on. If we think of Joseph. This guy's called in this passage, son of David, son of David. And you've known that's a title that has been applied to Jesus just a few verses earlier. David is called son of, or sorry, Joseph is called son of of David. And interestingly enough, as he um, had the right to divorce her and even out of anger could have put her to shame, 
He chose to do that quietly. It says because he was a righteous man, he chose to do that. And then, not only is he son of David, not only is he righteous in wanting to divorce her quietly, he's also obedient. When he's told by the angel, hey, marry, marry, anyways, he does. He listens and obeys. So Joseph here is presented as son of David, righteous, and obedient. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus is also all of those things. He is the true son of David. He's the only true righteous one, and he's the only one that truly obeyed God. So this Joseph, who is potentially a son of David, is a son of David, doesn't quite, isn't quite the full picture of who was inside Mary's womb. The true son of David, the true righteous one, the true obedient one. So Joseph truly was a son of David in the sense um, that he was, uh, you could trace his genealogy um, through uh, all the way down to him, and he was a son of David. So Jesus is Joseph's son by adoption. Um, he's not Joseph's son by blood, but he is somebody else's son by blood, which is Mary. When we read the account that Luke has of, of the genealogy of Jesus, he doesn't trace it through Joseph, he traces it through Mary. Showing that Jesus is a son of David. Mary's also a, a child on, on, on David's side of the family. Jesus is a son of David by adoption through his, his earthly father and also through his mother by blood. So we see that Jesus is the son of David presented. But we have to think, why does this, why does this virgin birth matter to us? Why does it matter to us 2,000 years ago as we worship the Lord and think and sing songs like, What child is this? Why does it matter that Jesus was born as a virgin, why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because, one, it shows the picture of the reversal of the curse in Genesis. The reversal of the Genesis curse. Remember the curse in Genesis was that in, in childbearing, women would have pain and there would be difficulty in childbearing. Well, in this picture, there was no difficulty in the child being born. It was the Holy Spirit that placed this baby inside of Mary. It was a reversal of this curse, and it was a fulfillment of the promise that was in Genesis. Genesis also says that there would be a, a seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. Jesus is that seed of a woman coming from this virgin woman. He is the seed that was going to come and crush the serpent's head, fulfilling this Genesis promise that we saw thousands of years ago, millennia ago. That's why the virgin birth matters, and also... I think the virgin birth matters because it's the only way to truly set in our minds the picture of divinity and humanity in one. It sets in our minds the picture of divinity and humanity in one. Think about this. God could have sent Jesus down, lowered him down with a rope or however he wanted to, just descended him as a, as a full-grown man and just showed up um, right there on top of the temple mount. He could have done that. right? He could have done that. But if God did that, would we really be able to see Jesus as truly human? I don't think so, right? If Jesus came down as a 33-year-old man, we wouldn't see him as truly human, which in a moment we're going to see why that's important. So if Jesus was, just came as a man, we wouldn't be able to understand and see and, and conceptualize his humanity. And if Jesus were born of just two parents naturally, what's to stop God from being able to do that? He could have done that. Yet, we would have trouble seeing his divinity as one come from heaven to earth. So in the virgin birth, we see 
divinity and humanity. God doing this, what he always does in perfect, wise way, showing us that this, this baby in the womb was truly human, born the way we were, yet truly divine, um, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And finally, the virgin birth is important because it allows Jesus to be that sinless seed of Mary, that sinless seed of Mary. If we think of the throughout the whole Bible, there's this, this idea of federal headship, this idea of, 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 of male leadership within a home and a family. And I think that that points to also this, this passing down of the sinful trait through man, through, through men. And in this case, Jesus doesn't have a human father, one to pass down this sinful nature to Jesus. So he's born without this sinful nature coming to him. So we have this perfect, divine human who's the promise of all the Old Testament, starting with the earliest promise, and he is a sinless seed of Mary. He is, he's the perfect one to be born to save us from our sins, which leads us to our second point. We've seen this miraculous pregnancy, this virgin birth, but second, we see this miraculous purpose. Why did Jesus come? Well, they named him Jesus. They named him Jesus. The Holy Spirit, or the, the angel that came and talked to Joseph said, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is actually just the Greek form, like the Greek uh, uh, phrasing of Yeshua from the Hebrew. And you know who else is named Yeshua in the Old Testament? That's another, we've also uh, anglicized the word Joshua. So Jesus' name is actually Joshua, Yeh. Shua, Yeh, meaning like Yahweh, and Shua, meaning salvation, Yeshua. That was Jesus' name. Jesus is named Joshua. And what did Joshua do in the Old Testament? Joshua did what Moses could not do. Joshua did what Moses couldn't do. Moses failed um, and fell, and he did not lead his people into the promised land, into freedom. He led them out of slavery, but not quite into freedom. But Jesus is the Joshua that comes along to actually lead his people into this perfect rest, into this promised land. That is Jesus, the one who can truly save us from our sins. And notice that a lot of people might have wanted, even the Jews might have wanted Jesus to be something other than a, a savior from sin. Might it have been better if he were a political leader? If he would have taken down the Romans, might it have been better if he was a humanitarian and started up a, a, a nonprofit organization to feed all the poor in the world? Uh, might Jesus have been better served if he came at a better time when we could, he could have written books and used the Internet? Right? Maybe we would have a better idea of what Jesus came to do. But Jesus, his primary focus, the sharpest point on his spear, the thing that he came to do was to save us from our sins. See, a lot of the problems that we see in the world, um, the, a lot of the problems you see on Fox News and CNN, a lot of the problems you read in the newspaper, um, if you have one of those anymore, or you read on your smartphone, all the problems you see in the world, most of those are actually symptoms of sin. The political unrest that we see, the poverty, the disease, the sickness in this world is really a byproduct of our sinful nature, of our sinful nature. Um, when humanity sinned, we not only subjected ourselves to a curse, but we subjected the creation to a curse as well. And so the problems we see in this world, all those that I mentioned, 
Um, those are things that are indirectly impacted by Jesus' death on the cross. But his primary reason for coming was to save us from our sins. That's why his name was Joshua, kind of titling what he came to do, which is save us from our sins. And Jesus came on a rescue mission for us. He came on a rescue mission for us to save us from our sins. And does that, does that say anything about our sins? I think it does. Does it show you really what your sin is? A lot of times we treat sin as, a, as an oops, as an accident, as I didn't mean to do that, as in it's not a big deal if nobody knows kind of thing. But that's, that's not how God treats sin. right? We think, man, I messed up, I made this mistake, I did this sin, but as long as we keep it secret, as long as I keep it secret, it won't impact anybody. It's not hurting anybody but me, right? But our sin, that's not the way God views our sin, the issues inside of our heart. He saw the, the, the sinfulness that was deep inside of us. And in order to fix that, he sent his son, Jesus, to come, to be born of a virgin, to live the perfect life and to die a death for our sins. That is the, is the extent to which God had to go to save you from your sins. He's not just saving you from uh, an accident, not just spilled milk. He's saving you from a rebellion against him. And he did that. So in this passage, as we see Matthew making the point that uh, Jesus is fulfilling all these things, he, he fulfills these promises through being um, uh, through this miraculous pregnancy, the virgin birth, through his miraculous purpose of coming to save us from our sins. But also we see that Jesus is a miraculous person. The character, the person of Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel. It's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful uh, thing for Jesus to be called this because it's God with us. God together with humanity. When Jesus was born, that baby lying in the manger was God in the flesh. Um, we call this, if you want to use the, uh, 64, the $64 word, $64,000 word, whatever, uh, the hypostatic union, the, com the combination of the divine nature and the human nature in one, the hypostatic union. This is God in man. And I want you to notice, I want you to catch this. Your sin, our sin, didn't push God away from us. It actually drew him to us. In our hurt and our aching and in our sinfulness, God chose to step closer to us, into his own creation to be with us not distance himself from us, to be sure, we, you know, we know the truth that you know, God cannot have sin in his presence, right? He's so holy that as, as, as sin comes to him, uh, it's just vanquished, right? We think of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. If that priest walked into that temple and wasn't properly cleansed and properly purified, he would die on the spot. That is absolutely true. But that's what makes this miracle of the incarnation a true miracle. God steps into his own creation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God steps into his own creation to be with sinful man, to be with him. Friends, let me say this to you. There may be sins that you're hanging on to, clinging to, that you're hiding in your heart. No one knows about them except for God. You're afraid to mention them or afraid to even bring them to him because you feel that's just going to push him further away from me. When God knew about the sin of humanity, he came to be with humanity. 
If God knows about your sin, which he does, feel free to confess that to him and know that as you cry out in repentance, he's not pushed away from you, not disgusted by you, but drawn to you that he might show you grace and mercy. God with us. And it's really important that it is God with us and in some sense God as us. So it's not just that Jesus is fully God. That's that's a really important thing. He is fully God. And the fact that he is fully God makes him worthy to pay for our sins. It makes him worthy to pay for our sins. There's a debt that we owed. There's a debt that we had to pay that far outnumbered our righteousness. Our righteous bank account would be depleted and then some if we had to pay for our own sins. But Jesus, being divine, has an infinite bank account of righteousness that he might pay for your sins. So you cannot outsin his righteousness. You can't outsin his grace and mercy. You can't outrun that. He is fully God. As God as he was before he entered, or entered his creation, he is still that much gone and he's worthy to pay for our sins. So Jesus is fully God, God with us, but he's also fully man. So as fully God, he's worthy to pay for our sins. And as fully human, he's in the position to pay for our sins. Um, if you've ever sold a house or bought a house or done any kind of transactions, you know you got to have two parties that agree right? Um, you don't just get to, to make all the decisions on one side of the party, right? There has to be one person buying and one person selling. There has to be one person offering and one person accepting. Uh, if that were, if we just got to make the decision on both sides, we'd have a lot of different interactions. But you have to think, this divine transaction that's taken place, God had a lien on humanity because of their sin. Humanity, therefore, needs to pay for that sin. But Jesus, the miraculous thing is that Jesus is both God and man. He's God in the sense that he can pay. He's worthy to pay our sins, but he's also man. So he's on this side of the transaction as well. As he takes on human flesh, he's able to pay for our sins from our position, right? So he's on both sides of the transaction because of this miraculous, uh, this miraculous incarnation, his taking on a flesh. Jesus was like you In every way, in every way possible, Jesus was like you. Hebrews 4.15 says this about Jesus. It says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Every temptation that you faced, uh, whether that be physical, emotional, mental, Every, every temptation you face, Jesus has experienced that in some form. He's like you in that way, except he's never given in to that temptation. That's the difference. So Jesus is like you in every way. Hebrews 2.14 also says this about Jesus. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that help us, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, it says, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So it says that Jesus was made like us in every way. And because he was made like us in every way, he's able to help us. He's experienced your experience. I had a funny experience uh, right over here a few weeks ago. I was talking to Aaron, and he was talking about how Ashley was having some uh, Braxton Hicks contractions, and Dennis was standing there, and I said, yeah, man, those are those Braxton Hicks contractions. Uh, and it made it sound like I had had a Braxton Hicks contraction, which I surely have not. Uh, they made fun of me because they said, oh, have you had one, Tim? No, I have never had a Braxton Hicks contraction. Um, I never will. But I had observed a Braxton Hicks contraction. That's a fake contraction. Or, or, but it doesn't feel fake, does it? That was my point, was they might be fake, but they don't feel fake. From observance, I've seen my wife go through that. So I was able to sympathize with Ashley by observation, or with my wife by observation, not by participation. Jesus can sympathize with your pain as a human through participation. He has participated in the human experience as much as you have. He was hungry. He was thirsty at some points. He was tired. He knew what it was like to sleep on a hard floor with a rock as his pillow. He knew what it was like to take a cold shower in the Jordan River in the winter. He probably had a sore throat and a fever at one time. He was like humans in every way. He knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to live with humans. He knows what it's like to be made fun of, to be jeered at. He's had his closest friends betray him. He's been insulted and humiliated. He knows what it's like to have his family turn their back on him and make fun of him. He knows what it's like to be human. And as a matter of fact, he's more human than you are. How so? Well, he lived without sin. See, we were made to be sinless and we messed that up really early. Our great-great-grandparents messed it up, and from that point on, none of us have been sinless. So to be truly human is to be born sinless. So none of us can live up to that humanity, but Jesus did. Jesus knew what it was like to live a sinless life in perfect fellowship with the Father. He never felt the shame of sinning. He never came to the altar to repent for his own sins. He never made that walk of shame to somebody with his head bowed to say, I'm sorry, I messed up. He never did that. And he's more human than you in the sense that he has experienced the punishment for sin. You and me, we feel the effects of sin, but we've never been punished for our sins. Not the way Jesus has been punished for sins. The broken relationships, the sickness, the aging, the aches and pains of getting older. You felt all these effects of sin. I felt them, but you've never felt the punishment for sin. He did. He's more human than you because he's felt the punishment that was due to humanity. The divine wrath. He carried a cross up a hill. He carried your cross up that hill. He felt the nails driven through his hands and he felt the wrath of God poured out on him. He slept in the tomb of being dead from from the punishment of sin, but he rose from the dead. See, Jesus was like us in every way. He was human like us in every way. He was human He was more human than us and that he was sinless, yet felt the punishment for sin. 
This Jesus is the one that we write hymns about and sing to and worship because we're not worshiping just a guy. We're not worshiping just idols like our brother mentioned on this video earlier. Uh, We're worshiping the divine son of God who stepped into his own creation. And we write hymns like this about Jesus. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all you nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to give them second birth. Born to raise the sons of earth. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's the same verse again. But you get the point. There's a third verse that I I didn't copy and paste in here properly. But you get the point. This kind of hymn, this beautiful hymn of Jesus being this exalted son of God, this divine human, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. This is the Jesus that we worship because of the incarnation of him taking on flesh, becoming like you. There was a miraculous pregnancy that happened to fulfill the Old Testament. There's a miraculous purpose that God had set forth in the Old Testament that Jesus accomplished. And finally, there was this miraculous person, Jesus, God with us, who was able to accomplish all that the Old Testament promised, including your salvation. So in this passage, we saw two names of Jesus, Jesus and Emmanuel. His name is Jesus because he saves his people from their sin. But is he Jesus to you? Has he saved you from your sin? His name's Emmanuel because he was God who dwelt with man. But does he dwell with you? Is he in your heart? Can you say not just God with us, but God with me? Is that your relationship to Christ? If it's not, maybe this will be the last Christmas that you spend not being able to say God with me. Maybe this is your opportunity to say, I want to put my faith and trust in Christ for the first time to ask him to forgive me of my sins and be Jesus to me and to have him dwell with me in relationship to be Emmanuel, God with me. Maybe this is your opportunity. Uh, We're going to have a moment right here where we're going to respond. We're going to sing a song called Emmanuel. It's just a time for us to just praise God for the fact that he is God with us. So this is an opportunity for all of us to respond to say, God, we praise you for this. But this is also an opportunity. If you're here this morning, you want to talk to me more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, how it might be that you would be forgiven of your sins. You can feel free to come and talk to me during this response time. If that's not the greatest time for you, talk to me in the back. I hang out back there and talk to anybody who wants to talk to me. If that's not the greatest time, find me on Facebook Messenger. Call me. My number is in the bulletin. Find me. I would love to talk to you about what it would mean to have this Jesus be your Savior. Let's pray.